There we go. Last week, we talked about uh, a couple different visions. One of them was a vision for healthy relationships, and the other one was a vision for missional small groups. And I'd just like to read that second vision again. It goes like this. We see a variety of small, missional small groups meeting in different homes in the community, which disciple church members, attract into their groups former members and people who are newly interested in Jesus, and which are engaging in missionary efforts that are unique to the gifts of the Holy, that the Holy Spirit has given their group. Now, on Monday, I told you I got this report from the, the conference or from the Natural Church Development. It's this assessment that goes through all these questions, and I wanted to give you some context for that because it's important to what we're going to talk about today. The, the assessment is over um, a wide variety of topics about church health. There's eight main categories of questions, and uh, I, if you took the test, and about a third of you did, if you took the test, then you know that, that there's quite a few questions that it asks. It takes about 15 minutes or so to go through them all, uh, maybe 20. If you're very, very, very careful about answering each one, it might have taken you half an hour. Uh, and, and we had people answering it from, or filling out the survey from uh, teenagers um, to octogenarians. Uh, we had people that were men and women. Uh, we had, we had um, people from every different ministry that this church does. The one thing that everybody had in common, and, and, and I should say that each of those categories were fairly well represented. It wasn't like 90% of the people who filled out the, the um, survey were um, older or were younger. There's, it's very evenly spread among all the ages, and about 50% were female, 50% were male. The one thing everybody had in common is that they were actively involved in, in doing things and participating in this church. So they know the church pretty well. And um, the uh, assessment that came back, it has these eight different categories, and we didn't change a lot from the time that, that we did this in 2017. So it's the second, uh, the second scoring that we did. There have been some changes, and they're fun. We'll have to explore that next week when the consultants from the conference come and go through this with us. And I think it's going to be a fun experience. So I, I hope that you plan on coming Friday night at 7 o'clock and also staying after potluck about 2, 2.30 uh, to, for those two times where we really explore this, uh, this assessment. But you'll notice in the assessment that the highest scoring category is passionate spirituality. And I, I think that that makes good sense uh, in our church. We care about that kind of stuff, and, and we put a lot of emphasis into it. And you look at the questions and in, in the, the responses that were given to those questions, and I think it, it represents us really well. The, the lowest category is the second to the last one that says uh, loving relationships. And, uh, and there's some, some things that, that we could work on in this. And we're not going to explore that today. That was last week. We talked about family and kind of one of the foundations of loving relationships. And there's more to do as we think about this as a church community. Uh, and that's probably going to be the, the area of focus for next week. And it's important. When you come into the church, you want to be able to be authentic. You want to be able to share things with people and know that they're going to keep it in confidence. You want to be able to, to be real and not just have a facade. And so this is a very important area of our church that we need to focus on. If you look uh, just to the, the left of that just a little bit, you'll see holistic small groups on that list. And in, in all of these areas, we have the potential for growing. But I want to point out the holistic small groups today because uh, it's an important aspect of creating a loving community. It's not easy to really share deeply with somebody you only see at church. Because I, I might know your face, I might know your name, 
I might even know a little bit about your, your job or your history or how long you've been around, but, but we don't really know each other until we spend time doing life together. Small groups are a way that we can move forward in uh, these important loving relationships that are, are necessary. Now, today I want to explore these small groups in a couple ways. I want to look at the theology behind it. Why, why is this important is a question that I want to answer. And then I also want to look at kind of the, the structural organization and give you a picture of what it might look like. Um, I, I want you to start, it's not going to happen this month. We're going to try to implement this in January. But um, I want you to start imagining what our life as a church community will look like as a church of small groups. The, the Bible talks about a lot of different aspects of uh, God's interaction with mankind. And in, in many different places, it identifies small groups. You, you might think of Jethro and Moses and, and their division of Israel from uh, everybody responding to Moses to thousands and groups of hundreds and then groups of tens. That was kind of the, the structure basically creating small groups. And you could look at Jesus' experience with the disciples, or you could look at the Trinity. There's lots of different ways that we could examine the subject of small groups in the Bible. But the one I want to point out is what we read in our scripture reading, and that's the the early church experience right after Jesus uh, left the earth and the Holy Spirit was poured out. And in the English Standard Version in Acts 2.42, it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Uh, it's not a bad translation. It's a good translation. But I think that our friend Don James, have you heard of Don James? He's like the Adventist small group guru. He used to teach at the seminary, but he got tired of, of talking theory and he said, I want to do it again. So he went back and he's, he's now preaching and teaching and leading a, a church in Medford, Oregon. Um, Don James says that this verse really should be translated like this. In their small groups, they devoted themselves to the Bible, to parties, to potlucks, and to prayer. <laughs> it's doing life together. It's that social engagement. And, and if you read the rest of the chapter, uh, you, you've recognized that the result of this, and, and don't get me wrong, Jesus is the builder of the church. The Holy Spirit is the power behind the church growth. And this phenomenal growth in the early Christian church is not because of a structure. It's because of the Holy Spirit. But, but God works in structure. You can't ignore the reality of structure. If we didn't have a treasurer, although we might be blessed, it would not be as successful because we don't have the structure in place. Um, by the way, thank you, Pam Briock, for being our treasurer. <laughs> it's a really important role. And, and if we didn't have our Sabbath school leaders, we wouldn't find the Holy Spirit leading our children in the same way, right? We need structure. So the structure isn't the thing that created this fantastic growth, but it was what made it possible for the Holy Spirit to work. And, and it says in the rest of that chapter that everyone was filled with awe, that they had everything in common, that they continued to meet together, that they broke bread in their homes, that they ate together with gladness, they praised God, they enjoyed Enjoyed the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We have some visions in our church, and one of the main visions is that this is a church that will be growing and helping God grow His kingdom. Do you want a church that's being that's adding to the number daily those who are being saved? Would that be a fun thing to experience? I, I think that 
it's essential that we created a, a church of small groups where that is possible. I mean, when somebody comes to know the Lord and they, they may, might walk through our doors, they, they look and they see me preaching and they're, they're, they're like, okay, he's a little strange, but I can get over him. Um, and they, they might hang out with you and listen to the music and they'll be like, okay, you know, it's, the music is all right. It, but it's when they get in your community, when they spend time in your homes, when they develop friendships with you, that's when they're going to be hooked because you guys are some really nice people. And, and when we get to know each other in that community, we have the opportunity of spiritual growth. We have the opportunity of friendships. We deepen relationships that, that um, transform our experience in life. And, and so that, that the, the church experience, isn't, it's not enough. The Holy Spirit needs some smaller units to work with to really move in our church. A large portion of this message is taken from a book that I've been reading called The Colors of Community by Christian Swars. It's uh, the Natural Church Development or Institute for Natural Church Development has developed a series called NCD Discipleship Resources. And this is one of them, The Three Colors of Community. And so that's part of where part of the message is from. And the other one is from a book called Activate um, by Nelson Searcy and Carrick Thomas. Um, and uh, Nelson Searcy and Carrick Thomas have done small groups in lots of different churches, and they found lots of ways it doesn't work. And I've heard of lots of ways that it doesn't really work. Um, and we'd like to try and experiment with something that has shown to, to have worked rather than something that doesn't really work. Does that make sense? Would you like to do that? Okay. So that's where I'm, I'm basing it from, uh, those two books. Small groups are, they're really church in miniature, when you think about it, Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Um, so it's a small group gathered in Jesus' name, and Jesus is present with us. Jesus is certainly present with us in this room today. As we worship him, God ad adores our praise. He loves it that we're here worshiping him. Uh, but it doesn't require our whole church in order to experience that. Martin Luther, early on, when he was trying to figure out the whole how church works thing, he said, small groups are essential. If you are a Christian, you've got to be in a small group. And then later on, he was like, well, actually, I think the church is really required. Like the building, the institution is required for salvation. You can't be saved unless you're walking through these, this building's doors. And so he decided small groups were a bad idea, and he, he, he stopped doing that. Um, I think he had the right idea to begin with, that uh, God's salvation is through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. And, but, but when we interact with Jesus, we're, we're going to interact with each other, and we need that, that connection. And I think it starts in those smaller groups. The, church is, the, the small group is a church in miniature, which means that the things that make for a healthy church are going to make for a healthy community. And I'd like to, to show you some of those, but I need a, a, a framework, a framework of threes. There's lots of threes in the Bible, and this is going to be a three. God interacts with us through our mind. So we need the intellect, the what do you think component of our relationship with each other and our relationship with God. We need that. We also need our heart. How do you feel? That's an important aspect of our lives. You cannot experience life without the emotional side, 
Uh, sorry, gentlemen, if you think that you don't have emotions, just because you don't know how to communicate about them doesn't mean that you don't have them. You absolutely do. Your wife can tell me all about them if, if she would wanting to. But um, then there's the hands. What will you do? And, and some of us really like the intellectual stimulation of the- theology. It's fantastic. Some of us really like the emotive response of our hearts, and we need more of that passionate involvement. And some of us are really doers, and we want to get involved and active. But we need all three of these to be holistic. The The symbiotic synchrony of these, these three um, domains working together. Christian Soares and the Institute for Natural Church Development have identified seven uh, core qualities of a small group. And these are very similar to the core qualities of a church, except for um, one component. The church has eight. Uh, and these include for small groups, effective structures, need-oriented evangelism, passionate spirituality, gift-based ministry, loving relationships, inspiring worship, and empowering leadership. Does that seem like a big list? It doesn't need to. Um, These are really simple ideas, nothing really complex with them. But I just want to break them down into the three components, the three domains I just suggested. I don't know if you can see them on the screen, but we'll just go through them. Effective structures is something that's necessary. You need order in anything that you do in order for it to really go smoothly. And uh, the effective structures is head business. It's uh, based on reflective thought and consistent planning. Then there's need-oriented evangelism. We, we can't just exist um, in, in our own little sphere and say, oh, we're cool with our, our little social group. God is inviting us to share the gospel with people, and Jesus did that by ministering to people's felt needs. So need-oriented evangelism pertains to the hands. It's the active um, application of these things that you believe, practically sharing what we have received. Then there's passionate spirituality, and that passionate spirituality is our interaction with God. It's our response to His truth and His Word. And, and that's, that's heart stuff, really. Um, and and it, it includes really every aspect of our emotional lives. If you didn't think that religion was about the heart, I guarantee you that if you have been convicted by God that something needs to happen, you know that's not just an intellectual thing. Conviction is something that drives your emotions. And God says, you've got to do this. Um, and then there's gift-based ministry. That one's kind of between the head and the hands, It's related to applying your spiritual gifts uh, to concrete tasks. So it's kind of a hand thing, but it's also kind of a head thing. This is, I know God has called me in this way. Loving relationships is positioned between the heart and the hands because it's, it's motivated by love, the heart stuff, but it's also applied in concrete ways in your, in doing things your in your hand. Um, inspiring worship is kind of positioned between head, that's the teaching component, the intellectual stimulating part, and heart, the encountering God, uh, the conviction stuff. And that's got less emphasis on action, but it's, it's an important aspect of, of your, your small group of, and of church. Empowering leadership is kind of in the middle. Empowering leadership is a facilitator. It, it makes all the other parts possible and encourages all the other parts to happen. So it's positioned in the middle of those three domains. It's, it's not an accident that in order for a small group to be effective, it needs to have some kind of a balance, a mix between all three of those domains. A small group that has no order in it, no effective structures, won't last very long. A small group that's not empowering and not, not uh, moving you to reach out, it's not going to be a small group that grows. Um, to, to be effective, a small group needs all three of these domains. Now, there's a distinction I'd like to make between genuine community and what I'm going to call a pseudo-community. 
You know what I'm talking about. When you have somebody over to your house for, for dinner, you know, a little dinner party might be fun. Everybody knows how, what part they play. I'm the visitor, so I bring the flowers, or I bring the drink, or I bring the, the pie, which, by the way, if you've come to my house, thank you for, for bringing stuff. I like that. It's fun. Uh, but you know the rules. You know as a guest, you're supposed to bring something. And if you're the host, you know that you're the one that's supposed to you know, put things out and clean things up. If you come to my house, you know that I don't believe in those rules. I'm going to put you to work, um, which you're welcome to come. I'll, I'm happy to put you to work. Uh, and and if, if I come to your house, you also know that I'm going to put myself to work because I, I feel like, you know, that my mom taught me that. I, I don't know how to be part of a dinner party. But um, that pseudo community, everybody knows the rules and everybody knows how to do things. And, and if you do it, if you fall into your roles just right, then it's going to be smooth. And, and among those rules is don't talk about politics and don't talk about, you know, edgy religious stuff, right? You know the rules. But that's not genuine community because genuine community is heart stuff. It's the stuff of making disciples, right? And in order for you to be a, a disciple, it, it impacts every aspect of your being. It impacts your marriage. It impacts your relationships. It impacts your, your, your thinking and your intellect. It impacts your, your um, social structures and how you view life. Um, discipling is messy business. It's difficult work. It's, it's sometimes complicated work. And, and so you can't have a dinner party discipleship. You have to have genuine community in order for discipleship to happen. So, so when we talk about small groups, we're not just talking about a nice experience where you go over and hang out at somebody's house. We're talking about an experience where you're authentic and you're real and you can bring yourself to this group and you can trust this group, um, that, that they're going to love you and help you grow. Kind of the iron sharpening iron idea. Um, we, we interact with each other's real lives and we grow because of it. Now, while small groups are essential for growth as a church, there's something I think that's more important uh, than, than our church growth. You know, the, the more people in our pews. Uh, that's not the big important part of our church. You know that, right? I'd love to have lots more people here in the mix. But, but it's not just about getting more people to join us on Sabbath morning. It's about the gospel being applied to our hearts. It's about real life transformation. And if church is about that, then small groups in order for them to really be important, they have to make a difference in my everyday life. It has to mean something for me. And and so I'd like to talk a little bit about what that means. Western culture talks about sin as breaking the rules. You know, if you if you steal something, you've broken the rule. That's sin. If you lie, you've broken a rule. That's sin. Uh, But there's something deeper, something more important about sin, um, more important than breaking the rules, more important than the rules themselves. And, And that's, I think, what makes sin truly sinister and so terrible. It's not so much that you lied, it's that you broke a relationship when you lied. It's not so much that you stole, but that you harmed somebody that God loves, relationships are, well, here's another three. Well, before I tell you the three, I should take you to Luke 10, 27. At least that's what's next on my, on my list. Luke 10, 27, Jesus says it this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are two significant relationships that are neighbors and God that, that he interacts with. But he, he adds a third relationship when it, whenever he says as yourself. So there's three relationships. And here's the three I'd like you to think about. The relationship with God, with others, and with yourself is all of those relationships are impacted by sin. 
One sin or another is going to break that connection with God or with others or with myself. And Jesus' command is to love the Lord your God, to love others and to love as you love yourself. In order for us to be obedient to God's command, we need to be in loving relationship with each other. Not just not lying and not stealing and not committing adultery, but genuinely loving each other. And so this is where I see small groups being an an important and an essential component of our, our walk with God and our relationship with God. Sin messes with God's design for health in all three of these areas. And in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, it says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And and it doesn't matter which sin you go to. Every sin in some way is a spiritual problem and it connects to God and it breaks that relationship with God. Quite a few sins impact other people as well. And some sins, the Bible says, is sins against ourselves, sins that primarily impact us. But because other people love us, even sins against ourselves impact other people because they begin to break that relationship. Essentially, sin is shifting from the we of the relationship with God, others, and myself to an, a me. It just, it's a, a, a one-pole uh, love relationship. I love me. I'm the center. I'm the most important thing. That's what sin really does for us. And it, it's not that, that sin makes everything good for me. Because sin doesn't. When I make me the most important thing, it actually doesn't do anything good for me. It messes me up. It, it, it harms me when I make me the priority. Now, there's several pivotal sins, and I'm going to talk about each one of these. They're, they're kind of sins that, that, that a lot of other things are, are um, they're almost baskets. Lots of sins fit into these, these categories. And so I'm going to share some sins, and I'm going to talk about how they interact with the community and how they interact with those seven core communal qualities that the um, Christian source is suggesting. The first sin is pride. Pride results from the absence of empowering leadership, and it's the, the community-destroying model that it suggests is, I am better than anyone else. Pride lifts me up. And in contrast, the motto to the empowering leadership core quality is, let others grow. The next would be gluttony. Gluttony results from the absence of effective structures. You know this if you've ever struggled with a diet. Um, In order to have a diet work, it has to have effective structures. If those effective structures break down, if you're not following the regimen, right, then you're not going to be on the diet for very long. Gluttony results from the absence of effective structures. Its community-destroying model is, I have to fill myself. In contrast, the motto of effective structures is, live in moderation. Envy. Uh, results from the absence of gift-based ministry. Its community-destroying model is, I deserve the same as everyone else. And in contrast, the motto of gift-based ministry is, I depend on others. I deserve just as much as everybody. That's what greed says. Greed looks at other people and, and uh, says, I, I want what they have. Um, I'm sorry, envy. It's, it's, it says, I want what they have. I deserve what they have. But, but there's something different about a mindset that says, I depend on someone else. And reciprocally, somebody else depends on me. Greed is the result, of, uh, is result from the absence of need-oriented evangelism. Its community-destroying motto is, I need more for myself. 
In contrast, the motto of loving relationships, I'm sorry, in contrast, the motto of need-oriented evangelism is pass on what you have received. Anger results from the absence of loving relationships. Its community-destroying model is, I hate my offender. In contrast, the motto of loving relationships is, break down the barriers that separate. Sloth results from the absence of passionate spirituality. Its community-destroying model is, I don't care about anything. Nothing matters. In contrast, the motto of passionate spirituality is, love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind. Lust results from the absence of inspiring worship, and its community-destroying model is, I use others for my own exaltation. In contrast, the motto of inspiring worship is, direct your full devotion to God. In Romans 8-2, Paul shares the results of breaking down these important relationships And he hints at the freedom that's offered in salvation. He says it this way, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's something about the the law of sin that leads to death. Now, I mentioned the Western culture thinks about sin as an activity. It's something that you do. You break the rules. In, In the Eastern culture, and the Bible is an Eastern document, In the Eastern culture, sin had more to do with death and sickness. You see that whenever you interact with the Old Testament and its laws on purity. Whenever it talked about the 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 different laws related to purity, it was talking about washing and cleansing and had a lot to do with diseases and death. Uh, Sin was was portrayed in in the Bible, all throughout the Bible, as a, a problem with life itself. If you're, if you're sinning, if you're in sin, then you're sick and you're going to die. And I think that that's an important part. Obviously, breaking the rules is also part of sin. If you, if you lie, you've broken the rule, that's sin. Why is it sin? Because it damages people. But there's also something about your experience, the reason for your sin, that is, it has something to do with this nature of life and death, health and sickness, in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 7, Paul says this, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In English, these translations like gifts, the, the, the Greek word would be charismata, and then services and administrations, the Greek word is diakonia, and then Paul adds this third element to the mix when he says different kinds of operations or workings or activities, and the Greek word there is inner, inner gamata. What does that look like? If you were to try to say that word in English, energy. Because see, sin, it, it, you've heard of the idea of a, a root and a fruit, right? The, the things we do are just the fruit, and we got to get to the root of our sin. Well, when you look at pride, you might have thought, especially when, as, when I was a kid, I thought this, because my mom would be like, don't be proud, or I, I, I don't want to, to say things that will puff up your head and make you proud and things like this. And, and yet, as a kid, I was like, but I want my mom to be proud of me. I want her to, to enjoy the things that I do. And I, I kind of was upset with her because she didn't want to be proud. <laughs> and, and, and I think if you explore these sins, like, you, you, for instance, um, gluttony, is it important to eat? If you don't eat, you're going to die. 
the opposite of gluttony is not to not eat, <laughs> right? And, and uh, it's in pride, it's, it's not like every aspect of, of um, appreciating somebody is about pride. And you kind of run into these challenges when you think about these sins, like almost as if maybe there's a part of that sin that's good. I want to guarantee that's not the case. There's nothing about pride that's good. But there are the things that drive pride that either lead to pride or else lead to something good. And we'd, I'd like to suggest that those are the energies that Paul is bringing out here in 1 Corinthians. Not just the gifts, but the things that drive them, the, the, the energies that, that move us to one thing or another. Um, and, and what we like to do is we like to say, Stop being proud. We want to suppress, suppress the sin. Stop lying. When I was a kid, I think I might have been 10 or 12, my parents, um, I had a problem with lying, and I would, I would lie to, to try to impress people, which it never does, kids. If, you, if you're lying to impress people, I guarantee they see through it. But my parents wanted me to stop lying, and so they had me write down every single verse in the Bible that had anything to do with lying. And the hope was that it would, it would uh, stop my lying. It would, it would encourage me to not lie. And, and we want to do that. We want to suppress our gluttony. We want to stop our pride. We want to we change that by removing it from our lives. And while that might sound good, it, it has some, uh, some consequences. It leads to something we call self-righteousness, and it often leads to hypercritical spirit towards others. We see that problem in others, and we want to point it out. Oh, it's bad. We shouldn't do that. Oh, don't stop doing that. We want to suppress it by, in, in everybody. I think that the Bible has something a little bit different to suggest about how we should relate to these sins in our lives. And it has to do with community because sin breaks community, it breaks those relationships with others. And so it would, it would make sense that dealing with sin has to have some involvement of the community. So here are some, some energies that are kind of behind these major sins. One would be power. Power it leads to pride, pleasure to gluttony, identity leads to envy, the energy of sustenance leads to greed, justice to anger, renewal to sloth, intimacy to lust. Now, these powers are not bad. The sins that they often lead to are bad, but the powers, the things that drive us, I think they're gifts from God. And each one of us has a little bit different mix of those powers, those struggles in our, or not struggles, energies in our experience. Um, for instance, if you think about power, power isn't bad. It can lead to, uh, to pride, but it also can lead to really great things. Uh, it's necessary in our community even. Our need for sustenance isn't bad, but it, it's, it's necessary for, for, for survival even. Our desire for intimacy, it was designed by God. These are energies that God created. The problem is that our natural hearts are self-centered, and we take this desire for power and we drive it straight into selfishness, and that leads us to pride. We take our desire for intimacy and we drive it with our selfishness right straight into lust. We take our desire for sustenance and we drive it into uh, a, a, a greed and a desire for much more than we ever needed. And the solution is don't be greedy. The solution is not don't be great, greedy. Don't be proud. That's like saying to a deaf person, stop not being able to hear. Start listening again. It's like saying to a blind person, stop being blind. Start seeing again. Right? That's not the solution. The solution is to, to take our 
energies that God has given us and redirect them. Let's take this example of power. Being driven by power doesn't necessarily mean that you'll be filled with pride, but in the absence of community, it's going to lead to pride straight there. In the absence of community, all we've got is ourself. And, And so if it's redirected, it might look a little different. It might look like this, that energy of power being directed it's almost like it hits our community and is bounced back from the selfishness that we would normally uh, drive us to pride, and it, it bounces back and it becomes something different. It becomes empowering leadership in the context of community. Community is like a parabolic mirror that, that reflects things back to where they should be, where God designed them to be. When we're in connection and community with God, loving Him with all our heart, soul, and mind, and we're in community with others, loving them as we love ourselves, then those selfish tendencies will be redirected. Those energies that God has designed will be used for the benefit of the whole community. And, and people don't have the same God-given energies. Uh, one's motivated by power, another by justice, another by identity. Someone with a high power um, energy, they're dissatisfied with the status quo. They're not willing for it to stay as it is. They look beyond the need of the moment. They, they don't run away from, other, from obstacles. They're prepared to give their very best to accomplish something good. They don't accept limitations. They're, they're able to make tough decisions. They, they're willing to risk conflict if it's necessary for the group to improve. Do those sound like good qualities? Yeah, power is something God has given us. Without power, you can't be empowering. Your goal shouldn't be to avoid power. Your, vo- your goal should be to express power in the context of community, empowering others. Empowerment is not just, uh, it, it's about empowering others. It's about passing on the power that God has given you so that others can grow and be used by God. In Mark chapter 10, uh, James and John came to Jesus and they said, we want something important. We want to be important people in your kingdom positions of honor. And, and you can see them as individuals being motivated by ambition and pride and power. And Jesus doesn't respond by saying, stop being interested in power. He doesn't even say, stop being proud, be humble. He doesn't say that. If you look in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 44, he says, Jesus called to them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority of them over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And so Jesus himself, he doesn't say, don't be interested in power. He says, that's exciting. I created that desire in you, James and John, and here's how you direct it, by being servant leaders and empowering the community. Barnabas is a good example of power. This is an empowering guy. He meets Paul, and before any of the other disciples are willing to recognize him, they're afraid of him, Barnabas lifts him up and encourages the, the, the congregation to accept Paul. And he becomes one of the first missionaries sent by the church into the Gentile world. And he's with Paul, and you know what he's doing? He's got another young guy that he's brought along with him. And you know what, Paul? He is not the same kind of leader. He's motivated by different things than Barnabas, which is okay. God designed our community to be diverse like that. And so Barnabas is interested in, in, in developing this young guy named John Mark, and, and Paul does not like John Mark because John Mark fails under pressure. And he's like, I'm not, I don't want anything to do with that guy. They end up splitting. Barnabas 
he, he could have been one of those guys that carried all through the book of Acts and that we heard all of his exploits. And he might have even written books of the Bible and done all kinds of amazing things if he had not been interested and passionate about expressing his, empower, his uh, energy of power through empowering leadership. Instead, he broke away from Paul, and Paul's continued his missionary journeys and continued writing letters to churches and whatnot. And you know what Barnabas did? He developed John Mark. And John Mark, we think, wrote the book of Mark and had a big impact on the book of Matthew and Luke as well. John Mark was a fantastic missionary in the church because Barnabas empowered him and developed him and selflessly redirected his energy of power into the community rather than into pride. If you'd like to understand what God-given energies you might have, whether that's power or justice or intimacy or whatever, then there's a, a test. And I've got the deacons all prepped for it. There, there's, I think I've got 50 of them. If, if you need one and, and there's not enough, let me know. I'll get, I'll get it to you. But um, it's just a couple pages long, a questionnaire, 50, I think 50 questions. You just respond to it. I think it took me maybe five minutes to take. And it's, it's interesting, the, the questions are really well-rounded, and it gives you an idea of how God has, is driving you. My particular passion, my energy, the one that's the highest there is empowerment, and apparently my lowest one is passion. I don't know why, but that's, whatever it might be for you, I, I think it's fun to kind of experiment with this and figure it out, because what will happen is you'll realize two things. What's your greatest vulnerability? My greatest vulnerability is pride. And I recognize that. Every time you say, great sermon, pastor, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> I told Octavian last night we were talking, I, I said, please give me some constructive criticism. I need, in order for your sake, I need to grow as a preacher. So give me some constructive criticism. Don't just say good job. And, uh, and, and so you're, you're welcome to do that too if you want to. Please be gentle. <laughs> but I know that pride is a tendency that I can lean towards if my interest is selfish. And so I have to be pretty... Uh, pretty interested in investing in this community rather than my self-interest in order for that desire or that energy of power to be moved into empowering you. And I, I think that's one of my biggest passions is empowering leadership. So I think it makes sense that that would turn up on my, on my list there. So if you want to be, if you want to figure out your particular energies, I'd encourage you to take that test. The deacons will have it as you walk out the door and you can grab it from them. We've looked at the early church and how these uh, relationships are so important to building small, uh, to, to building not just the church and growing the church, but also to our own spiritual lives and, and dealing with the sin that, that's in us, redirecting our, our energies to bless the community rather than for our own selfish interests. So we've looked at some of these theological implications. We've looked at some history. I want to I look at the practical side. What would this look like in the Bonners Ferry Church? And before I, I say anything about the structure, I just want to say, I've never done this before. I've led small groups, but I've never led a church in small groups. And to be honest, it's a little bit daunting. I read these books, uh, and, and, and I talk to people that have done it, and I'm just like, I think I might mess this up. And that's Okay. Because we can do something that scientists like to call experiments. Are you, are you ready for an experiment? We're going to do an experiment, and we're going to see if something works. And if it doesn't work, that's okay. We'll ditch it, and we'll do something else. 
because we have a vision for this church, and we'll keep push, pushing towards that vision, even if one little uh, experiment that we tried didn't really work out. And so we're going to have to do stuff and then, and then uh, kind of check and see, hey, is this going all right? Is this making sense? Is this working for everybody? Um, no, not. Well, why? All right, let's figure out the why. All right, let's restructure. Let's reorganize. Let's figure out how to do this right so that it works here in Bonner's Ferry Church. Because I don't care what they do in, in Medford. No offense to Don James. He's got some really great ideas, but Medford's different than Bonner's Ferry. So we need to figure out what works right here. But we got to start somewhere, so we're going to start with an experiment, and we're going to see if this experiment will work in this environment. Now, we have some built-in small groups. We've got Sabbath schools. We've got adventurers and pathfinders, some built-in small groups. And, and I think that one of the ways that we're going to figure things out and experiment is to try to make those built-in small groups effective and holistic and meeting some of these, these core qualities of a holistic small group. That, that might mean that in the next few weeks, the next few months, you start to see your Sabbath school restructure. You might get a little bit of up, like, like upset in it. You know, it might have to change a bit, not just in its timing, but also in how you engage with it. I don't know, maybe the Sabbath school leaders won't be willing to do anything like that. Um, I'll have to talk to them and figure it out. Um, but, but it may be that that's a place where we'll start to implement small groups. It, it might be that uh, our Wednesday night prayer meeting becomes a small group, and we figure out how to restructure that in a way that will make that work. And I, I want to say something uh, that, that uh, this book, Activate, uh, points out. You can't be a church with small groups and lots of other ministries lots of other things to do. Because let's say that, that I asked um, Don to, to work at, at something here uh, in, in the pulpit or, or Sabbath school or something on Sabbath. And then I asked her to be part of a, a Friday morning women's ministries meeting. And then I asked her to also come to the, week, uh, the Wednesday night prayer meeting. And then I also asked her to come to a small group that she's participating in. How quickly do you think Don will burn out? In fact, she probably will just say, you know, thank you for suggesting it. No. <laughs> There's no way we can be a church with small groups. We have to be a church of small groups. This has to be the way that we structure our ministry. And I'd like to suggest that it would come this way. We have small groups as our mindset. And as a result of the small groups, God leading in each individual small group, we do ministry. Maybe there's some women's emphasis a small group wants to do. Maybe there's some, some uh, social outreach that somebody, another small group wants to do. Maybe there's a, a need-based evangelism type thing that, that another group wants to do. And, and so we need to be uh, thinking of ministry, not in context of institutional ministry, you know, ministry that we organize as an institution, and then we all, we, we try to recruit volunteers. Um, come on, help us with this event. Come on, help us with that event. Rather, rather than doing that, we should say, let's, you know, put your energy into that small group and let the small group be the, the fountain of the, the evangelistic impact, the social impact, the, 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 the different outreaches that our church does. That's a different way of doing church, isn't it? It might mean that we have to reorganize some, some things. And this year, as we look at, at events and things, we might have to say, you know what? No, we're not going to do that event. I know we've already got a women's retreat scheduled and a men's retreat scheduled in August. If you don't know about that, it's sounding exciting. Maybe we'll do that still. Maybe we'll cut that. I don't know. Um, I, we've got it scheduled. We should, we should move towards it and figure it out as we go. We're going to experiment. Is that okay? 
You're not going to stomp on me as I go out to church, are you? If, if it's going to work, we need to do it in a way that it'll work for you. It can't, it can't take over your life. Church can't overrun your work and your family. If, that, if that's going to happen, then you're going to reject that structure. And so we can't do it that way. We have to think about how do we make this church thrive? How do we disciple each other? How do we grow evangelistically? How do we make an impact in our community where they see us working and they, they say, we love that Adventist church up there. And, and if it's going to be through small groups, then we can't have big institutional stuff going on all the time. So, so we'll have to process that. We'll have to figure out how that works. We'll have to experiment. Uh, and, and then it's not just Wednesday night prayer meeting and Sabbath school that might be there because effective churches that have implemented small groups tend to have groups of maybe six to 20 people. They find that the bigger, the bigger groups are, are a little more successful. If you get below about eight, then uh, it's not as easy to run a small group that, small, that, that size. Um, and it's not as easy for it to build momentum. But maybe 12 to 15 or so, that's the right size. Uh, that's where it really thrives. But, you know, somewhere between 8 and 20 is about right. And, and they're not small groups that are there forever. I've heard of churches that try to enforce small groups where you've got to go. And then you sign up, and that's your small group, like it or not, for the next 20 years, that's where you're going to be. That's, that's not sustainable because what, life changes, isn't it? Uh, you have different seasons of life, different things happen, and, and, uh, and pretty soon you're just going to stop going to that small group, maybe stop going to that church if it forces you to be in that small group. Instead, we should, the, the small groups that seem to work are time-based small groups, where for maybe three months, you're participating in a small group. And maybe one small group is focused on marriage enrichment. Another small group is focused on mountain biking. Did you know that mountain biking is a spiritual thing? I should hear at least one amen. (laughs) It's not just mountain biking, but social, outdoor, engaging things. Maybe one small group or two are about outdoor stuff. And, and, uh, And, you know, when we suggest a small group about outdoor stuff... Uh, you, might be in, you might be inclined to sign up your name, or you might look at that and say, walking in the mountains? No, thank you. And that's okay. It's okay for that, that small group not to interest you. So interest-based small groups that, that, that are, have different themes and different ways of structuring themselves, that, that will meet a variety of needs in our, in our church. Maybe some will focus more on families and others will focus more on um, an older or younger uh, demographic. And, and those are okay. Um, so maybe what we do is we have a, a sign-up period for a period of time, maybe a month. And then we have a, a three-month period of a small group meeting going through some curriculum or doing some activities or doing some ministry-based thing. And then at the end of that three months, we take another pause, we reorganize, we have another month of, of uh, sign-ups where you can choose a different group if you want to. Maybe the same group if it was exciting and you like mountain biking or, or whatever, parenting, whatever the, the thing might be. And, and at that time, we can publish a new list, you can sign up, you can, and then you have another three-month period. They call it semester groups, kind of like you're in college again. <laughs> you have the winter semester, the summer semester, the fall semester. Um, semester groups, and it, it, it gives the opportunity for the, the church to have a break. And, and you know, not everybody's going to be part of a small group every single time. Maybe this month is not a month, or this season is not a season that you can be part of a small group. That's fine. And, and I want to make it clear that a church of small groups does not mean that it's a church of judgment when you're not part of a small group. 
your choice and how you interact with God's community is your choice. It always has been. It always will be. And there shouldn't be anybody looking down anybody's nose about how you behave, right? We need to be, uh, we need to be taking this back out of our own eye and focusing on our own walk with God and our own interaction with His community and not worrying about everybody else's. You know what I mean? Let's not be those hypercritical people, self-righteously pursuing uh, suppression of sin. Let's, let's be those loving people that redirects our passions and our energies into his community. The next steps that we need to take, I'd suggest there might be two. One would be take that test and just see where, what energies do you have? What, what motivates you? And how is God inviting you to redirect the vulnerability that that energy gives you into God's community? <clears throat> and the next, the other step would be one that our leadership is taking, and that's to, to start organizing the structure of these small groups in our community. Organizing the structure is going to mean, let's recruit some people. That means I'm going to have to have some conversations with, with uh, some, some Sabbath school leaders and figure out if there's receptivity to that idea or, or um, if we need to, to rework some things, how that might work. And, and however that works out, I'm happy. I'm not going to I'm not going to threaten your Sabbath school, don't worry. Um, I'm going to have to talk with the, the, the Wednesday night prayer meeting and figure out what does it look like to be a holistic small group and how can this be part of that. And we're going to have to recruit some other people that are passionate about this. And maybe we have a couple small groups. Maybe we have five small groups. I don't know what it's going to end up being. That's going to be up to you and how you are passionate and wanting to, to make this, um, this community work. So recruiting and training and putting the structure together for those small groups. And sometime in January, probably the month of January will be a sign-up month where you'll have a variety of options that we'll publish and we'll talk about it on a a number of occasions. And by the end of January, we should have some small groups organized and you'll have the opportunity to join those small groups. That's the structure I see. And again, it's an experiment. This uh, uh, This isn't the way that it must happen, but it's a way we're gonna start and then if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. Is that fair? Are you okay with that? All right. Well, that, that's the big idea. Small groups, it's important. And if we don't engage in small groups, then there's some spiritual problems. If we don't do small groups, then our church isn't going to grow and thrive. Um, it, it's going to have the potential for growth, but not as much. How, how many of you would like an Acts 2 church? An Acts 2 church that's adding daily those who are being saved. I'd like that kind of church. And I'd like the discipleship that happens from that kind of a church. The personal growth, too. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have given us a, an opportunity here. And so we just want to ask that you would start to, to convict our hearts and, and figure out, help us figure out the structures and, and that as we begin to organize ourselves in this way, that you, your spirit would be poured out among us, that our individual giftedness will begun, begin to be expressed in these different groups, that our, our spiritual lives will grow, that our relationships will deepen, and our love will get stronger. We just pray that, that your spirit will be here in every aspect of this. We don't want to lead ourselves. We want you to lead us. So we surrender to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.